We are in the book of Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, next to Jesus Christ, the wisest man that ever walked on the earth. Um, he wrote Song of Solomon probably early in his lifetime, dealing mainly with love and, and those kinds of concepts. In the middle of his life, he wrote Proverbs, but many of the Proverbs, which talk about just practical living kind of stuff. And at the end of his life, he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, and he wrestles with this idea of what is life, what's the meaning of life. And he tries to look at life under the sun, is the phrase that you see often in this book. And that, what he's saying very simply is this. If you kind of pull God out of the picture and you just go through life on this planet, under the sun, normally, here's what it's all about. And in essence, he comes up to this conclusion. It is worthless. It is like chasing the wind. It is a treadmill existence where it might do something for your body to be on a treadmill for an hour, but at the end, when you turn the machine off and you step off the treadmill, you have not gone anywhere. You have not, you have not, you know, you may have accomplished some things for your body, but you have definitely not accomplished anything in traveling any distance anywhere. And he says, <clears throat> in chapter one, it's kind of like that. In chapter two, he talks about the idea of, you know, look, it, it, you have to make life about something outside of this world under the sun. You can't find satisfaction in people. You can't find satisfaction in things. You have to find it somewhere outside of this world. You get to chapter three, and he talks about the idea of, uh, of the variety that is involved in life and, and the idea that, 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 that life has all of these elements to it that, that compose life and make up our lives. And it's very important that we understand that, you know, just as there's a time to be born, there's a time to die. And there, there's, this, there's this give and take all the way through life. And then he talks about some of the problems that comes up in chapter 4. He talks about injustice and some of those kinds of things. And then um, last week as we got to chapter 5, um, he just he, he wrestled with some of these ideas here that, you know, look, um, it, it's about your attitude. You really have to step back and take a good hard look at, at, at your outlook towards the things that are happening in your life. And you have to be careful that you don't focus on your provision. But instead, you focus on the provider. It's really easy sometimes to make that jump. And we've been talking about that in Sunday school. This morning... We're going to be looking at chapter 6. Next week, we're looking at chapter 7. And in chapter 6 and 7, here's what Solomon talks about. He talks about two paradoxes. Now, a paradox is something that when you originally say it, it doesn't seem like it can be true. But when you explore it, it turns out to be true. And the paradox that we're going to look at this morning is wealth um, is not always a good thing. Now, when I say that, you're going, no, 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 just try me. No, no, no. Wealth is not always a good thing. And, he, and we're going to go through that this morning, and he's going to explain why. And next week, we're going to look at chapter 7, which the paradox is adversity may not always be a bad thing. And so there's two things that we're going to deal with. We're going to deal with the issue of wealth, and you need to know that we are, as a country, as an American citizen, incredibly wealthy. Um, if you make $45,000 a year, you live at a level that 99% of the world does not know exists. You are richer than 99% of the world right now. You need to understand that we're in a culture in which, like we talked about in Sunday school this morning, we are able to work five days a week to provide seven days worth of food. And in some cases, we have only one person in a family working five days a week 
to provide seven days' worth of food, in some cases for four, five, six, seven family members. That's not true in most parts of the world. In most parts of the world, you work all day, every day, to have food on your table. You know, those of us who have been to PNG um, in Papua New Guinea, that's the way it was. Those people had to get up every day and figure out what they were going to do to provide food for their family. There were no refrigerators. There were no things like that to store stuff up. So every day was a, we have to work today to feed ourselves. And so we are incredibly blessed, okay? And Solomon's going to bring out this point that that may not be a good thing. And that's what we're going to wrestle with this morning. So let's dive into it. Um, chapter, six, or chapter 6, and notice verse 1. Here's what he says. Uh, my, script, my, light, my bulb's going out. So I'm, for those of you that it's hard to read, we'll fix it next week. Um, here's a tragedy I've observed under the sun. It weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a man riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself. But God doesn't allow him to enjoy him. Instead, a stranger will enjoy him. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. Solomon says, you know what? Here's, here's the thing. We're working harder and harder and harder and harder, but we don't enjoy that which we have. And Solomon says, as I look at life under the sun, that seems a little crazy to me. In fact, Solomon's going to say, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy that we have gotten to a point that because of our wealth, because we have been given so much, we don't even enjoy what it is we have. And you think about it for a minute. You know, we've got stuff. And again, I'm not against stuff. But we've got stuff that we don't even enjoy. You know? Because, in fact, we've got stuff that we take care of, and we don't even enjoy it anymore, but we still take care of it. You know, I mean, some of you, okay, some of you have campers. You spend more time getting it ready and cleaning it up at the end of the season than you do in it during the camping season. You know, you have boats that go an entire season you never put in the water. We have cars that we keep, we have to start them every so often so the fluids go through them because we don't drive them enough. You know? And I'm not saying, I'm not criticizing it, but I'm saying when we get to the point that we can't enjoy that which we have, it, it's a little crazy. It's a little crazy. And that's what Solomon observed. And he said, look, life under the sun is like that. Just because you have a bunch of stuff doesn't mean that's a good thing if you can't enjoy it. Because you see, God has set it up. We're going to see this in a minute. God has set it up so that enjoyment has to come from him first. Then it has to flow through him. If you try to bypass him, you will never be able to enjoy it. He has set it up that way from the beginning of time. And then notice what he goes on to say in the next passage. This is a tough passage, so I just want to warn some of you, okay? Because this really is a hard, hard thing to... A man may father a hundred children and live many years. No matter how long he lives, if he is not satisfied by the good things and does not even have a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For he comes in futility, he goes in darkness, his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if he lives a thousand years twice, but he doesn't experience happiness, do not both go to the same place? Now, here's what Solomon does. Okay, First of all, you have to step into the Jewish world for a minute. Okay? And here's what Solomon's saying. 
In a Jewish world, God's blessing was marked by two things. Long life and lots of kids. If you didn't have children, then God was mad at you. That's the way they believed. And if you didn't live long, it's because God cut your life short. So in a Jewish world, to have God's blessing meant you had a lot of kids and you lived a long time. So Solomon uses that. And he says, if a guy has a hundred children, I mean, that's a blessed guy in the Jewish world. That's like, man, I mean, you, know, you just do the math, all right? You do the math, all right? And he's lived a long time. So, you know, you're, you're at probably at least 115 years or so, you know. Well, I mean, unless you had a bunch of wives, then maybe you could shorten that span. But, but I don't know how that would be a happy life. But anyway, <laughs> here's what he said. You know, this is Solomon who, by the way, this, that was his world. Anyway, here's what he says. He said, okay, so you have a whole bunch of kids. You have a big family. You have a long life. But you don't enjoy that. Here's what he says. And th- uh, this is hard. This is harsh. But Solomon says, a child who has been miscarried is better off. Now you go, oh, that's a big, big jump. I mean, you know how tragic that is to miscarry a child? Not from experience, but I've counseled enough people who have gone through it to know it is an incredible tragedy. That's Solomon's point. His point is, for somebody who has had that many kids and lived that long, if he hasn't enjoyed it, it is as tragic as that child. In fact, he says, Solomon goes so far as to say this, the child is better off. Because the child never experienced the disappointment and the heartbrokenness of having everything and not being able to enjoy it. He said both are incredibly tragic, but in the end... That child is a, has more benefit in not being born than he does to have a whole bunch of kids and a great big family and a long life and have no enjoyment out of it. And then he even takes it a step further. And notice what he says. And if he lives a thousand years twice, but doesn't experience it, what has he gained over that unborn child? That's what Solomon said. He said, look, If you can't enjoy the family and the life that you have, and you know what? You're in the same boat. Actually, you're in a worse boat than a child who was miscarried. It is that tragic for you to live that way. That's what Solomon said. So he says, look, you know, you've got to realize, you know, you have that job. You have that family. And then he goes on. Notice what he says next. Um, he's going to tackle two things. He says, a man's labor is for his stomach, yet his appetite is never satisfied. Um, basically, here's what he's saying. You know why you work? To eat. You, you, you work to put food on your table, to go to bed, to get up, to work some more, to put food on your table, to go to bed, to work some more, to put food on your table. He said... That's what it's all about, the next meal. And like I say, we're in a culture in which we work five days a week for seven days' worth of food. Or in some cases, some of you are in a situation where you get to work four days a week for seven days' worth of food. 
And Solomon says, look, you know, you've got to understand, if you're thinking this is going to make you happy and be satisfied, he said, realize, you're working for food. You know, I mean, you know, yay, rah. Um, You know, and some of you eat nicer food because you work a different job that pays you more than somebody who does, you know, that's, that's all he's saying. And he goes on to say this. What advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage is there for a poor person who knows how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye see than wandering desire. This too is futile in pursuit of the wind. He said, there are other people who sit back and they go, you know what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to get smarter than everybody else. And Solomon says, why? What advantage does it give you? If you're going to try to find happiness, and here's what he's saying. If you're going to try to find happiness in education or in being smarter than anybody else, if you're going to try to find ed- happiness in your work world and just working harder and harder and harder and putting more food on your table, if you're going to try to find happiness in your family by having a bunch of kids and living a long life, or if you're going to try to find happiness in your work, Solomon says, you need to understand, it's not happening. Because under the sun, it's just this chasing futile of the, chasing the wind, futile rat race, dee, 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 dee. If you take God out of the perspective here, he said, you're wasting your time. It doesn't make any sense. And then he's going to jump into the next thing, and here's what he's going to say. Verse 10, he's going to kind of wrap some of this stuff up for us, and he's going to give us a couple of reminders. He said, this is hard to follow, so hang on. Whatever exists was given its name long ago, and who is man? And who man is is known. But he is not able to contend with one stronger than he. But when there are many words, they increase futility. What is the advantage for that man? For who knows what is good for man in life in the few days of his futile life that he spends like a shadow? Who can tell man what will happen after him under the sun? Here's what Solomon's saying. He starts out with, when, when we look at this in the, in, in, in the original language, we get what we call decrees. In other words, there's some statements that he makes here about God. And when he starts about that, whatever exists was given its name long ago. Here's, in essence, what he's saying. Long ago, before man ever came into the picture, God had determined, God had decreed, God had set up a standard that says, happiness is not going to be found outside of me. He has set it up. And he knows who man is. So God knows how, to make, how, how, how man is designed to be happy. He created us with pleasure. If you think about it for a minute. <clears throat> We have, I'm getting to get in trouble now because I didn't write this kind of stuff down. I'm going off my memory in biology in high school. So, you know, you have on your tongue, you have all these little areas that sense different things. I know they're sweet, sour, sour, salty, bitter. bitter. Is is that it? Huh? Yeah, the vegetables fall in that category. Um, No, no. No, don't send me emails. Uh, uh, no, uh, okay. So, I mean, you have those characters. Why? Because God designed you to be able to enjoy all those different tastes. He designed you that way. He designed you to be able to see colors. Think about it for a minute. The world could be in black and white. Everything could be black and white. But God designed us to be able to enjoy the things that we see, the things that we hear, the things that we take, the things that we do with our hands. God designed us that way. That's why there's, there, there's you know, think about it for a minute. You didn't know, you, <clears throat> you didn't need to be designed with the ability to have 
uh, feeling at the tips of your fingers. But God did that because he wants you to be able to feel different textures. You know? And, and, and that kind of, God designed us that way. So God designed us to enjoy things. But, and this is the key, not apart from him. If it doesn't filter through God, God doesn't, God, it, you're not going to find satisfaction in that apart from God. That's what Solomon's trying to get across over and over and over again. And he says, look, and then he says, look, <clears throat> he is not able to contend with one stronger than here. Here's the idea. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, so think about this for a minute. If God's decreed from the beginning that he's going to set up how you're going to enjoy stuff, and God knows you and has designed you in such a way to be able to enjoy stuff, why are you arguing with him about what's going on in your life? Why are you contending with one who's stronger than you? Um, why are you fighting God on what's going on in your life right now? Why can't you just step back and appreciate what you have and enjoy what you have, and see what you have is from God, and understand that God is still at work, and appreciate what God's doing. Why do you have to keep going, God, it's not enough, I want more. God, give me, God, 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 you, why are you doing this? Do you, that's what Psalm says, why are you fighting it? Why do you keep wanting to fight that? C.S. Lewis said it this way. Um, what I want to do is go to this quote, guys, and then we're going to go back to this verse. Um, C.S. Lewis said this. To argue with God is to argue with the very power that makes it possible to argue at all. Now just think about that. To argue with God is to argue with the one who makes it possible to even argue. How crazy is that? And see, as Lewis said, that, that's just silly. But yet, we do it all the time, don't we? God changed my circumstance. God, I don't like this. How come this has happened in my life? God, you should do this. You should do that. Do, 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 do. You know? And that's what Solomon's saying. He said, whoa, 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 why are you contending with one who's stronger than you? Why are you contending with the one who's already determined the way it's going to be? Going back to the verse, he ends it with two questions. These are two questions we're going to wrap this thing up with this morning. For who knows what is good for man in life? In the few days of his futile life that he spends like a shadow. Here's what he said. He said, let me ask you something. How do you know what's best for you? You don't. But God who created you does. He said, you don't know what's best for you. You know what you think is best for you, but that doesn't mean it's best for you. And so Solomon really wrestles with this question. He says, look, you've got a short time in this earth. It's but a shadow. God has set it up. God has ordained it. God has orchestrated it all. Why are you fighting him on it? And why is it that you think you know better than him? That's his point. And then he adds one more question. Oh, and by the way, who can tell what will happen after him under the sun? In other words, how do you know what's around the corner? You don't. You don't have any idea what's sitting around the corner for you. So why is it that we as believers want to fight God and struggle with God on the things that happen in our lives? Why is it that we think that, for instance, and again, in the context of this thing, is about wealth. Why is it that we think we would be happier if we had more money and we're upset because we don't have more money? Well, back up the train for a second here. Maybe God knows that if you had money, you would push away from him. Now, do you still want money? 
if you know it's going to push you away from God? Why is it that you think your situation or circumstance should change? Because you don't know what's around the corner, but God does. How do you know that God has not got you where he has you right now in the circumstance you're in to prepare you for what's around the corner? That, that's, what, that's what Solomon's asking. He said, how is it that you think you know better than God? And you go, yeah, yeah, but I don't want to go through this. I'm not saying anybody wants to go through it. But I think this whole thing is really, really important for us to wrestle with. So I want to end it this morning with a couple of principles, okay? I want us to really go home today and this week thinking about a few things. First thing I want us to wrestle with is this idea that, look, only God knows what's best for you. You don't, the Bible says you don't even know your own heart, but God does. He knows what, what will hurt you and what will help you. He knows that what you want, you know, you've watched this, those of you who have kids or grandkids or whatever else, you know as well as I do, what they want and what is best for them are often two different things. So do you give them what they want or do you give them what's best for them? As a grandparent, you want to give them what they want. But a bad grandparent gives them what they want, not what they need and what they should have. Believe me, you know, believe me, I want to give my granddaughter, I want to introduce my granddaughter to the world of ice cream. <laughs> that incredible, wonderful world of ice cream. And I want to sit at a table and eat ice cream together. And I want to try to give her ice cream right now. However, that's not what's best for her right now. There'll come a day it'll be best for her, and I'll help her out with all that. But uh, right now, that's not what's best, okay? Uh, you follow what I'm saying? And, and God's the same way. God knows us to know what's best for us. And what's happening right now is best for us. We've got to wrestle with that. And the second thing is this. We don't know what's around the corner for us, but God does. Uh, let, me, let me explain it to you this way. Here's a great illustration. David. Have you ever thought about David's life for a minute? Okay, think about this. David is taking care of a bunch of sheep, watching, sitting there on the hillside, taking care of a bunch of sheep. He's bored. So what does he do? He starts throwing rocks. And he thinks I can throw him farther with a slingshot. That makes him a little slingshot. He's practiced the drawing. He's bored out of his mind. I want to see if I can hit that tree. Boom. Oh, that was cool. Uh, short. Okay, let's, let's redesign it. Boom. Boom. All day long. He's just bored. Doing the slingshot thing. Animals come along. He defeats them. He has no clue that God's preparing him for something. What if David sat there and said, God, I hate the fact that i got to take care of sheep, and I'm bored, and I'm mad at you, and I'm not going to do it, and God, I want you to change my situation, and I deserve better than this. And you, he just made the best of a situation and started playing with a slingshot. Then one day, God says, hey, i got a project for you. You're going to be the pizza delivery guy to take food to your brothers. So he takes food to his brothers and sees this giant in the hillside and says, what's going on? How come nobody's going down there? Well, we're all scared. I'm not scared. Why aren't you scared? Well, you know, I've, I've taken care of sheep. He's, a, he's challenging my God. My God will take care of this. 
Oh, and by the way, I got a slingshot. And I'm good. You know how I'm good? Because I was bored out of my mind back there in the wilderness. And I used to just do this for fun. He had no idea God was preparing him for something like that. None whatsoever. How do you know that what you're going through right now, God is not preparing you for something far greater that you have no clue about? Moses, 40 years in the king's palace, 40 years in the desert, 80 years worth of training to be able to lead a children of Israel out of Egypt. The whole time, God's at work. But let me tell you something. On year 38 in the desert, at 78 years old, he's not sitting there thinking, yay, thank you, God. But God's at work. And God's preparing him. And God's getting him ready to do something great. And something for that specific point in time in history that he's going to come. And it's no different for you and it's no different for me. And that situation sometimes that we want to get out of so bad, we've got to realize God's at work. And I think we've got to step back and say, you know what, the situation and circumstance, it's not what I want, it's not what I planned, it's not what I, but you know what, God's in control. I have to see it differently. Now, I'm going to take about three to four minutes here, and I'm going to give you a lesson on glass, all right? So you know me, I'm a glass guy, I love stained glass, I love hot glass, warm glass, cold glass, by the way, those are all legitimate things. Um, I, 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 I particularly, right now, we're doing a lot of stain. we're playing with stained glass, and we're doing warm glass, and my goal one day is to do hot glass. Hot glass is where they stick it in that thing, and they blow it, glass blowing, and all that kind of thing. Really expensive tools, never be able to afford to do it, but I can go places and use their stuff, so that's kind of what I like doing. So anyway, <clears throat> so anyway, so <clears throat> right now I do warm glass, and here's what we do with warm glass. We take glass and we play with melting it and making it into things. So let me show you a, a, a warm glass piece. Let me explain it to you, and just hang with me for a minute, and this is all going to make sense in a second, all right? So um, put up that picture, okay, um, of that plate. Okay, this is what we call a fused glass plate, okay? Now here's how it's made. They take a sheet of, of clear glass and they lay it down on a, on a, um, in, in a kiln on the floor um, on, a, on a deal, and, and they lay it down. And then what they do is they cut glass clear and different colors, and they lay those on top in that pattern. So that's what you see. So in the top corner, there was a red piece, and then there was a clear piece, and a blue piece, and a clear, and a red, and a yellow, and then there was a white, and a yellow, and a blue, and a white, and a green. They lay it out just like a checkerboard, okay? Then what they do is they take this piece of glass. This isn't mine. This is somebody else's. Um, they take this piece of glass. They put it in a kiln. Depending on the glass, it goes from about 14, uh, 1,400 degrees to 1,500 degrees. After about 1,550, it would turn to liquid and kind of all flow together. So they're trying to get it up to the liquid point, but not quite the liquid point. Okay? So it's what we call a full fuse, where they're, they're getting the, the glass to kind of start to flow together into one, but not turn into liquid yet. Get really, really close, but not turn into liquid. Okay? So then they have to cool it down. If you, if you heat glass up too fast, it cracks. And if you cool it down too fast, it cracks. And there's one point that's called a kneel. And the idea is when you, when you get glass all together, all the molecules are all mixed up. Okay? And what you have to do is you have to cool it down in such a way that all the molecules line up again and it has strength. 
And so it gets the strength again back into the piece of glass. That's why, by the way, your car windows are not annealed. That's why if you get a hit in them and they shatter into all those little bitty pieces, that's because they don't anneal that glass. Safety glass is not annealed. If they would hold it at a temperature for a long period of time, all the molecules would be together and it would be like plate glass. When it's hit, it breaks into big pieces. Okay? So that's the difference. So anyway, so what they do is they hit them. Then, when they're all done with that, they then let it all cool down. They then put a mold. In this case, it's a dish. They set a dish in there, a ceramic dish. They set the square piece of glass on top that's just a flat piece of glass down, all bud together. They heat it to about 1,200 degrees, and it takes the shape of the mold. And then they go through that annealing process again, and they cool it down, and they have created what you see. Okay? Now, so if you were in a store, the average person would see something like this, and they would buy it. And they would go, yeah, I like that. I'm going to buy that. That's really, really, really cool. But here's what a glass person sees. Here's what a glass person knows. I have to be sure that they use the right glass. You see, glass is not compatible. Glass, based on color and based on the glass, heats and cools at different rates. So if I take glass that is not compatible, and we call it the coefficient. The coefficient is how fast it expands and contracts and all the molecules line up and all of that. If, if, if I don't... If I don't know what the coefficient of the glass is, and I don't know that the glass all matches and plays together nicely, I could take any kind of glass, just all different kinds of colored glass, and make one of these. But here's what I also know. If the coefficient of the glass does not match, it may look good. But this particular piece has a lot of problems. The only way you can spot the problem is here's what you have to do. You have to take what's called a polarizing filter, like what you have on the end of your camera. You put a polarizing filter on the back, you put a polarizing filter on the front, and you put a light source behind it. Okay? Let me show you this piece of glass with two filters on it. Go to the next slide. This is this piece, same piece of glass with a polarizing filter on it. You see this right here? And you see this? And you see this, and you see this, and you see this little spot right here? Those are stress fractures that are already put into the glass. Because that glass did not have the same coefficient. So here's what that means. That means when that piece was created, there were micro stress fractures that were put in, in at those points in the glass. This right here is fused perfectly. There's no problem in here. But when you get what we call a halo in the, in the thing, what that means is that piece of glass has micro stress cracks in it. And here's the thing, that piece can sit on a counter for 10 years and never crack. Or, two days later it could be in pieces. Because built into the piece automatically is already a problem. But here's the thing, you don't see it. The only way you can see it is by putting it under the filters. That's the only way you know. It's the only way a glass person can test a piece of glass to make sure that everything's compatible. When I buy glass, I buy glass with a coefficient of 96, and I keep that all separate, and so all of that glass plays together nicely. But the only way to be sure is to put it under a filter and look for the halos that have already been created. Now, um, okay, you can get rid of that. Here's the point. The filter changes 
everything. The filter tells me what is really going on with the glass. In your life and in my life, we have to start to filter stuff through the eyes of God. We can't continue to filter stuff through what our friends are doing and what culture is doing. We have to step back and say, okay, God, what are you doing here? How do you want me to handle this? How do you want me to deal with this circumstance and situation? God, what is, we call it a God filter, a Bible filter, or, or whatever else. You have to step back and say, God, I've got to look at this from a different perspective. I can't look at this like everybody else is looking at this. I have to step back and put the filter of God on both sides of it and say, okay, God, what is it that you're at work doing? I know you haven't abandoned me. I know you love me. I know you haven't, I know that you're, you're, you're there yesterday. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. I know that you're aware of what's going on. I know that you know what my heart wants to do. But God, this is what's happening right now. So Lord, you're going to have to give me the strength and the grace and the wisdom to be able to walk through this situation. You're going to have to help me figure out, Lord, where I need to be content and where this is an opportunity for me to do something different or, or to take on a different challenge. You're going to have to do that for me, God. I have to see this through your eyes, not mine. And that is ultimately what Solomon's saying. He's saying, look, you don't know what's going on in your life right now. You don't know what the future holds, but you need to understand, I've got a filter on both sides of your life. I can see it clearly, and I'm trying to prevent some stuff right now. And I'm trying to prepare you for some stuff right now. And you're just going to have to learn to trust me. Because I see things much differently than you do. And Solomon says, look, if you, if you can't do that, then go grab you a handful of air and wind. Because you're going to get very frustrated with the circumstances and stuff that's happening in your life right now. It's like chasing the wind. It's just going to be frustrating to you. And, and what he's trying to get across to us is this idea of, look, you've got to step back and see things through the eyes of God that are happening in your life right now. And I know that's hard to do. And I understand the difficulty of that. But I'm here to tell you, if you're going to find satisfaction and joy and peace and contentment in life, it is only going to come through seeing it the way God sees it. Because you're not going to find it in family. You're not going to find it in your work. You're not going to find it in money. You're not going to find it in those things. You're going to have to find it through what God is doing in your life. And that's what Solomon pleads with us for. And he, he ends the book focusing on that as well. So my challenge for you is to step back maybe and say, all right, Lord, this isn't what, it's not what I signed up for. But Lord, there's something bigger going on here. And, and you've got to help me to trust you. You've got to help me to walk through it with you. And be able to see that God has not abandoned you. He is there. And that faith is that idea of trusting him every day in spite of the things that are surrounding you right now. So I end it with this. Solomon encourages us to stop arguing with God about our circumstances in life. Accept what God is doing. Find satisfaction in seeing God in your job, your family, your work, your education. Prosperity is not a good thing if you allow it to be a substitute for God. Let's pray. Lord, help us. God, we have been given so, so much. Lord, there are 
millions of people that would trade places with us in a heartbeat. And yet, Lord, often we sit back and are frustrated and we want more. And Lord, for every one of us sitting here, our circumstances could be better and they could be worse. So Lord, just help us to learn to accept and to embrace and to trust you for that which is happening in our lives. And Lord, when it is all said and done, and we gather around your throne, may we be able to look back and see how you used us in ways that, Lord, we never could see here. And when it is all said and done, Lord, we will give you the honor and the glory and the praise. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Um,